Supernatural in Central Florida. It's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 104th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Mom. And as you can tell, Denise is out of town. This is the first History Ghost Bump episode without Denise. We tried our best. We were going to have two shows while she was gone. And we thought, okay, we'll get the research done. We'll get them all recorded before she leaves. And, well, the best laid plans of mice and men, yeah, it didn't happen. So I asked Mom to come over and be my special guest co-host today. And we are going to be talking about probably what I believe, Mom, out of all of the prisons that we've done thus far on this podcast, the worst. I would have to agree. I don't believe I've ever heard of a place that was so horrendous, so horrible. It just boggles the mind. And that location is Andersonville Prison. It was a suggestion from our listener, John Beaverhausen. Thanks so much for your suggestion, John. We were looking at some pictures yesterday, and they just reminded me of things that you would have seen coming out of the concentration camps after World War II. So just an incredible place. And of course, when you have any kind of misery and war and death and disease, generally there's hauntings that go along with it. So we'll be talking about those as well. Before we get into that, we want you to check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you want to send us any feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We do want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Nell. Hi, Nell. Raina. Hi, Raina. Dennett. Hello, Dennett. Tara. Hello, Tara. Kelsey. Hello, Kelsey. Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Julia. Hello, Julia. And Jessica. And hello, Jessica. It was real cute in the Spooktacular crew, Mom. We have a young lady by the name of Mariessa, and she'd said, I had the opportunity to quote your usual promo while reminding someone about St. Augustine's haunted history. Apparently, listening to it over a hundred times means I've memorized it. I told her it was our brainwashing. <laughs> and then Chad Shepard shared with us over on the History Ghost Bump fan page. He said, thank you for a great program. It is very helpful to pass the time as I'm operating my front end loader all day. Hopefully, we don't spook him so much that he rams that front end loader into something. I've always been interested hearing stories about urban legends involving ghostly occurrences on movie sets. For example, the one on Three Men and a Baby. Have you come across such stories? And I told him that I remembered hearing about that. Did you ever hear about that story, Mom? No, but we did see the movie. Well, there is a scene in it, and I remember as a kid, we would rewind the VHS tape. For you youngsters, there's these things called videotapes. <laughs> we won't go back that we won't go back any further. But I could tell you before we had videotapes. Anyway, we would rewind it because in one of the scenes you can see a little boy standing behind the curtain in one of the windows. And the urban legend was that he had fallen out of that window or jumped out of that window and it was a ghost. Now, I've heard since that it was a cardboard cutout of Ted Danson. 
which didn't look anything like that to me. Why would they put him in the window? I don't know why you would put a cardboard cutout in the window, especially if you're trying to film the scene. That's kind of dumb. Or I've also heard that they thought it was the son of one of the crew members and that he just happened to be back there. But I'm also thinking you're pretty careful when you're filming. So I would think you'd notice that there was a child standing in the scene. I've heard of stuff that goes with poltergeist. A lot of the people that were in the movie poltergeist died. You know, the little girl, her sister died just shortly. I think she was killed by her boyfriend shortly after the first movie was made. The Exorcist, of course, has legends to go with them. So, yeah, we've heard about them, and they are fascinating to look at. We might actually have to do a whole show just on that, maybe. Uh, John sent us a great suggestion from Utah. Thank you for that. And then Matt had said that he was listening to our episode, which you also were a part of, Mom, on Dodge City, talking about the forts and how spread out it was. And he'd said that he'd gone to Fort Laramie a few years ago, and it was a lot different from the East Coast because the forts there are much more compact. And I know what he's talking about because I, too, have been to Fort Laramie, and it is very spread out. It's a very large fort. I believe it has been renovated to, you know, back to the way it looked when it was occupied as a fort. The first time I ever saw a Western fort, I thought, this doesn't look like the forts with the, the big, tall wood side where they stand yeah, up. Yeah, you're and, expecting to see something that's kind of fenced in. Yeah, kind of like a castle in a way. Exactly. But they're not. They're just these buildings. And the pioneers or settlers that were on the plains uh, and stage station managers, they would run to these forts. They would hurry to them for protection a lot of times. And I often wonder, well, what were they being protected in? (laughs) It's a good point. I'd always thought that that was really weird, too. Uh, Beatrice also let us know. Hello, I just wanted to say thank you for this informative and spooky podcast. You keep me entertained on my daily four hours of commute to and from work. I love history and I'm fascinated by the supernatural. So this podcast complements both areas of interest. As a Californian, all the podcasts related to my state freak me out. Well, we've got another one coming up later in the month. We're going to be doing the Winchester Mystery House. Yet I want to learn more. I think your podcast and other similar to it will help keep history and its ghosts alive. I love that for us to continue to learn from. Keep up the great work. One topic suggestion that I haven't heard. I'm still going through several of your previous podcasts is on Gravity Hills. I will go ahead and add Gravity Hills to our list. You see, when I lived there, I never knew there was anything spooky about the place. And then we got this email from Lorette Vincent, and in it she suggests what is going to be our moment in oddity today. And she also shares that I accidentally bumped... <laughs> And History Goes Bump last fall while searching for podcasts similar to Jim Harold's Campfire Stories. I enjoyed HGB so much that I decided to save as many episodes as possible for my January trip to the Philippine Islands. Both of you were with me from the bustling streets of Manila to the mountain caves of Sagada to the beautiful beaches of Boracay and the volcano ridge at Tagaytay. I hope I said those right. But most of all, you helped me to endure the 15-hour plane ride from Atlanta to Seoul. Ugh followed by another three and a half hours from Seoul to Manila for a total of 37 hours round trip travel time. Wow. Your format's fantastic and the length of each podcast is perfect. I also enjoy how the show has evolved, but ask that you please don't change the opening music. Just hearing the music in the man's eerie voice awakens my senses and nearly makes me hold my breath. And the new music for this day in history is simply divine. Well, I love that music too because it reminds me of old Hollywood. And don't worry, we will never, ever, ever change our opening music or our announcer. I did uh, the spacing or the timing of it probably changed a little bit because I re-engineered it because it was getting a little distorted. But uh, no, that's going nowhere. That's part of our trademark. So don't worry about that going away. She also added, 
Also, my husband and I have been to many of the locations you've showcased, and you always seem to add more information or a unique perspective. Last summer, we visited the Buffalo Trace Distillery, and it quickly became our favorite bourbon. We knew the distillery was haunted, but not to that degree. So I just said, well, I guess you got to enjoy one of the spirits there. And finally, we just want to send our condolences out to our listener, Jill, who lost her adult nephew in a car accident. Our prayers go out to you and your family from History Ghost Bump. All right, Mom, are you ready to head on out to the Andersonville prison? Yes. Hi, it's me, Diane, cutting in on the voiceover girl once again. Just wanted to thank our executive producers for a fabulous 2015. Because of you guys, we were able to increase our storage, which brought more content to everybody. We have a lot more goals coming in 2016. Our next goal is to bring everybody 9 to 10 shows a month. Right now, we try to do 6 to 7 shows a month. Patreon updated all creators' pages, and with that update, we updated our rewards and goals. So please check out patreon.com forward slash history goes bump to see what those extra rewards are. They include quarterly virtual meetups for those at $5 and above levels. And for those of you giving $10 or more a month, not only are you getting HGB logo gear, but after a year of donations, you'll be getting the exclusive t-shirt for that year as well. And for those of you who are unable to give, we greatly appreciate you tuning in and thanks for sharing the show. That does amazing things for us as well. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to this moment in oddity. The Igorot people live in six different provinces in the Philippine Islands and form 20 separate tribal groups, each with their own language, rituals, and beliefs. The term Igorot means people of the mountains. The Igorot people of the mountain province in the north near Sagada practice a unique burial tradition. This tradition is a way of honoring their tribal elders and spans 2,000 years. They are buried in wooden coffins that are then hung from cliffs. The elderly person carves their own wooden coffin, and if they are unable to complete this task, a family member helps them. Once they die, they are wrapped in blankets that are tied with rattan ropes and carried through the village in a procession. Mourners line the path and attempt to touch the body because many of them believe that if they get the blood of the deceased on them, that it will pass on the talents of the deceased to them. The body is positioned in the fetal position before being placed in the coffin so that they leave the world in the same way that they came into it. The coffin is then nailed or tied to the side of the cliff. Theories as to why the Igorot practice this form of burial range from the idea that it places the person's spirit closer to heaven, to protecting the body from scavenging animals that could unbury the bodies placed in the ground, to protecting the deceased from headhunters. The last burial at the location that Lorette shared with us was in 1984. The location of these cemeteries along cliffs certainly is odd. You're not afraid of a little ghost, are you? This Day in History This Day in History is brought to us by Jessica Bell. 
On February 11, 1858, Bernadette Sibiru saw the first of her 18 visions in Lourdes, France. As a young 14-year-old girl, Bernadette Subiru had 18 visions of the Blessed Lady in a grotto in the outskirts of Lourdes from February 11th to July 16, 1858. During a mission to collect firewood, Bernadette stumbled across a grotto that at the time was filled with rubbish washed up from the river. She told her companions that she saw a lady dressed in white, wearing a white dress, a blue girdle, and a yellow rose on each foot. The same color as the chain of her rosary, and the beads of the rosary were white. During the ninth apparition, the spring is reported to have miraculously appeared when Bernadette scraped the ground at the instructions of the Blessed Lady. Though many townspeople believe she had indeed been seeing the Holy Virgin, Bernadette's story created a division in her town. Many believe she was telling the truth, while others believe she had a mental illness and demanded she be put in a mental asylum. Some believe Bernadette's visions meant that she needed to pray for penance. Bernadette asked the local priest to build a chapel at the site of her visions, and the Sanctuary of Our Lady of Lourdes is now one of the major Catholic pilgrimage sites in the world. A few years after her reported visions, Bernadette became a nun and took the name Sister Marie Bernard. She was later canonized by the Catholic Church. History Goes Bump Podcast. We want to thank our research assistants who helped us out on this one, Jesse Harms and Ann Student. During February 1864, Camp Sumter was opened in Macon County, Georgia. Camp Sumter came to be known as Andersonville, and that is what it is still referred to as of today. Of all the prisons we featured on the podcast, Andersonville Prison seems to be the worst thus far. This prison was open to house Union prisoners during the Civil War, and to say that it was overcrowded would be an understatement. The amount of prisoners who lost their lives at this prison reaches into the several thousands, and the prison was not open for very long. These kinds of conditions and numbers of death usually lead to paranormal activity, and there seems to be quite a bit of it going on here. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Andersonville Prison. From the beginning of the Civil War until 1862, prisoners were exchanged in the battlefield. A private for a private, a sergeant for a sergeant, and a captain for a captain. Problems arose with this system in 1862, resulting in the creation of large holding pens for prisoners on both sides. Union Army Major General John A. Dix and Confederate Major General Daniel H. Hill met on July 18, 1862, and drafted a cartel providing for the parole and exchange of prisoners. The draft was submitted to and approved by their superiors. The Dix Hill Cartel, as it became known, was signed and ratified four days later. The cartel failed before the end of the year for various reasons, including the Confederate government's refusal to exchange or parole black prisoners. They threatened to treat black prisoners like slaves and execute their white officers. Prisoners were returned to the battlefield too soon, creating another problem. Confederate prisoners from Vicksburg surrendered on July 4th, were paroled and back on the battlefield within weeks. On October 23, 1862, Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton directed that all commanders of prison camps be informed that exchanges of prisoners would cease greatly affecting the large number of prisoners held in northern and southern prison camps. 
And if you just think about it, you just know you let those guys go. They're going to be turning right around and shooting at you again. Well, that that's true. Northern prisoner of war camps were Camp Douglas in Chicago and Johnson's Island and Camp Chase in Ohio. Southern prisoner of war camps were Libby Prison and Bell Island in Richmond and Camp Florence in South Carolina. The two prisons in Richmond were overcrowded by mid-1863. The overcrowding and severe food shortages caused Confederate officials to look for a suitable location far south of Richmond. They selected Captain W. Sidney Winder to find a suitable location in southwest Georgia. In Milledgeville, Georgia's capital, Governor Joseph E. Brown introduced him to legislators from southwestern counties in Georgia. Winder traveled to Albany, but property owners discouraged him. He then traveled to Americus, where Uriah Harold, a commissary department purchasing agent, told him about Andersonville, which he claimed had a large supply of good, clear water. Andersonville was five miles west of the Flint River and 1,600 feet east of the Southwestern Railroad's Andersonville Depot in Sumter County, now part of Macon County. Winder evaluated the area and selected it in mid-December 1863. Construction of the prison was the responsibility of the quartermaster department, who chose Richard B. Winder of Maryland to oversee the project. In January 1864, slaves started digging a ditch and felling trees to construct the prison that would house 10,000 prisoners. Pine trees were cut 22 feet in length, with 5 feet set in the ground and 17 feet above ground. Broad axes were used to make all sides slat so prisoners could not see outside of the prison. The stockade had two gates, one on the south and one on the north, and 80 sentry boxes at 40-yard intervals. The prison's interior had a deadline about 19 feet from the stockade wall. Remember how we talked about the deadline in Dodge City, how the deadline was the railroad? Yeah. So this was the line, kind of don't cross. Guards were given orders to shoot prisoners who crossed the deadline. The prison was completed in the third week of March. Well, I see why they call it the deadline. You cross it, you're dead. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's true. (laughs) The first 500 prisoners arrived at Andersonville Prison Camp, also referred to as Camp Sumpner, February 25th, and put into the unfinished stockade, which had a shortage of equipment and food. Before authorities could get the prison put in order, they were swamped by the unceasing arrival of prisoners, which numbered about 400 every day. There was short supply of food and containers to hold rations, such as plates and cups. Prisoners resorted to using hats or sleeves torn from clothing and tied with string to hold their rations. Can you imagine how appetizing that must have been to either eat your food out of your hat or out of a sleeve? Especially if you've been sweating in it all day. Well, and the dirt. I mean, they didn't get to take baths or anything either or wash their clothes. No. During March, rations consisted of cornmeal, beans, and occasionally meat. As prisoners continued arriving, food rations diminished. Prisoners were divided into detachments of 270 men and then subdivided into three companies of 90 men each with a sergeant in charge. The sergeants received the rations and divided them as equally as possible amongst the men. By the end of March, there was only cornmeal and a little salt. Can you imagine how hungry those men must have been? No more protein. Wow. Can you imagine the scurvy that must have happened as well? Oh, you know, that's true because it didn't mention anything about fruits and vegetables. No. Wow. On March 27, 1864, Captain Henry Wurz was placed in charge of the prison. Wurz, who was born in Zurich, Switzerland in 1823, received some medical training before his father insisted he enter the mercantile field. 
Worse came to America in 1847. He joined the 4th Louisiana Infantry at the beginning of the Civil War and was wounded in the Battle of Seven Pines. By April 1st, 1864, the stockade, designed to hold 10,000 prisoners, held 7,160. By May 8th, 5,787 more prisoners arrived. 728 prisoners died, 13 escaped, and 7 were recaptured, for a total of 12,213 prisoners in the stockade, which of course is already now more than it's supposed to even hold, and it's going to get way worse. Richard Winder made the terrible mistake in locating the prison's bakery and cookhouse upstream from the prison, which polluted the stream used by the prisoners for drinking and bathing. You remember how they had that clear, wonderful drinking water? Yeah, the whole that, reason why they built it there. Right. Death was caused by contagious diseases, polluted drinking water inside the stockade, inadequate hospital accommodations, lack of prisoners' quarters, exposure to the elements, bad sanitary practices, short and defective rations, and overcrowding. In order to protect themselves from the elements, prisoners constructed what they called shebangs. The huts and lean-tos from logs, limbs, shrubs, and brush left in the stockade, as well as blankets, tent flies, overcoats, and clothing from the dead. The Confederates and prisoners made no effort to properly design or lay out streets in the stockade's interior, so the shebangs went in all directions. The disorganization and lack of proper camp administration probably caused a higher death rate. Prisoners' letters, diaries, and manuscripts all contained the same subjects, the loneliness, dejection, hopelessness, helplessness, and complete despair. Can you imagine living out in these elements? They didn't have anything to sleep on. It would have been the ground, and they had very little to even shelter them. They had really no blankets to cover with. It was probably the most primitive conditions you could ever imagine. Yeah, because they weren't even really inside of anything, were they? No. They were just kind of out in the elements. They were. They had. They didn't have barracks. They had Barracks hadn't been built, nothing. It was just this great big, huge, open stockade. It Basically, it was like bringing a bunch of cattle in yes. and putting a fence up around them. Yes, yes. They didn't even supply tents or anything for them. They had to provide their own shelters. And they're not much, as, no. as we see from these shebangs. No. It's like, oh, let's find some logs and some brush. And wow. Of course, this is the perfect stew for hauntings here. Lumber and tools ordered to erect barracks and other facilities for the prisoners was used for buildings outside the prison. Not receiving the lumber not only prevented shelters from being erected, it also affected sanitation in the prison. Captain Wurz came up with a good idea to solve the sewage and toilet problem. He planned to build two dams across the stream running through the stockade and flush out the bottom end of the stream daily by opening the dams. If lumber and tools had been available, his idea could have worked. Two squads of 25 prisoners each were supplied with shovels every day and charged with removing all offal from the prison. The combustible part was burned and the rest thrown into the stream, which would just continue to pollute it. Oh, yeah. That must have been good. Wow, so he had this wonderful idea, but nope, no wood and stuff, so forget it. Well, they used the wood for other things in town, and so it was like, why provide it to these prisoners? In May 1864, 708 prisoners died. The prison contained 12,000 prisoners, with at least 500 arriving each day. The stream was a quagmire. One prisoner wrote, 
all of the filth from the prison ran into the creek, and we had to strain the water through our teeth to keep the maggots out. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. Even if you're straining the maggots out, you can't drink that kind of water. Well, they had to, because you need to have water. The excessive heat enhanced many types of diseases. There was little chance of escape with 1,200 guards, four pieces of artillery, and a cavalry company. By the time this Andersonville was built, this is in 1864. The war ended in April of 1865. So this is a latter-day prison that was built. And so a lot of these men had already been fighting in battles and probably did not have a lot of rations or their clothing and things maybe weren't in the greatest of shape. But there, the Union soldiers were better off than the Confederate soldiers. Men lacking shelter from the weather developed sores, which in time often turned into gangrene. Disease and sores were spread through lice and thousands of flies swarmed throughout the prison. Killing lice became a game that helped pass the time. Oh, God. (laughs) The excessive summer heat caused many types of diseases such as typhus, smallpox, dysentery, and diarrhea to spread through the prison. That summer, more than 100 prisoners died each day. During the winter, many prisoners died from the cold. Authorities were advised to move the hospital outside the prison and supply enough tents for 1,000 patients. When a new hospital was located outside the prison stockade, it only had tents for 800. And by June 1864, there were 1,035 in the hospital and 3,000 sick inside the stockade. Many prisoners were insane, helpless, and entirely naked. One prisoner later wrote, The sight of all the misery, the starved, dying, and half-naked humans all around, those with scurvy, misshaped limbs, swollen limbs, swollen joints, and festering sores infected with gangrene, all contributed to make the newcomer so unnerved that he would soon get into a mental condition of despair out of which the ghost beacon of death seemed welcome. By the end of summer, the crowding was worse. The spread of disease increased. You know it's bad if you'd be better off dead. I wonder about all these guards that they had. You'd think they wouldn't even want to be anywhere near these prisoners. And what were they eating and drinking? Well, they were being fed because they were on the outside. They weren't prisoners. When you have to feed 12,000 people, it's a lot different than feeding 1,000. So they probably had enough food for the guards. And they probably didn't need you know, real, real great, but nobody in the military at that time ate really great. They at least would have had something to really sustain them where the the prisoners did not. And by the way, when we were talking about dysentery and diarrhea, this was a common thing that killed soldiers during the Civil War, not just these men in prison, but men on the battlefield also often died from it. Whenever I hear about this, when they're drinking from just the water that's out there on the field, and do we know when Giardia came into the water supply? Is that something that's just part of our modern experience? Well, I'm just going to break in here really quick. You all know how I love my rabbit holes, and I went down this one because I had to know. Where did Giardia come from? When did it start? Giardia is officially known as Giardiasis, and it's known by its common name, which is beaver fever. And the reason why they call it this is because so many campers get Giardia from drinking contaminated water that was inhabited by beavers. Makes sense. 
And as I'm looking through the research out there, there's this scientist by the name of, and I know I'm going to butcher this, Van Leo Wenhoke. And he first saw Giardia through a microscope in 1681. I had no idea it would go back that far. He described it as being rather slow moving, but making quick motions with their paws, quote unquote, moving in helical motion, which we now know are the flagella. When he saw these parasites, they were in their trapezoic stage, and the paws were the flagella with four pairs of these little tails per parasite. It took until 1880 for the scientific community to realize that there was another stage that did not contain the flagella, and this is when it is in the cyst form. More extensive research was done on it in 1859 by a scientist by the name of Lamble. And so although the scientific community was aware of Giardia, they did not realize it was the cause of diarrhea outbreaks until the 1970s. So although it seems like it's a more modern-day thing, it goes back hundreds of years. And it was actually thought that it was just a little harmless inhabitant in your intestines. <laughs> oh, boy. So anyway, back out of the rabbit hole. When a prisoner became helpless, gang members called raiders would rob him. Over time, the raiders' boldness grew, and the robbery victim was sometimes murdered. At the end of June 1864, with the help of Captain Witz, the raiders were identified and removed from the prison for trial. From the opening of the prison up until they were caught, the raiders had robbed, murdered, and in every way made life even more horrible for the prisoners, as if it wasn't bad enough. Their own people were preying on them. them. Yeah. A trial was held at the end of June 1864. Some of the guilty raiders were ordered to wear a ball and chain. Some were strung up by their thumbs, well that's good, or set in stocks. Six of the leaders were found guilty of murder and were hung on July 11, 1864. A police force called the Regulators was organized within the prison and headed by Limber Jim. Each day, prisoners received a quarter of a loaf of bread weighing about six ounces and four or five ounces of pork. After rations were dispersed, prisoners tried to trade for something more palatable or for things they needed such as trading salt for wood or trading wood for beans. Food was constantly on the minds of all the prisoners. Well, I think it would be if you're starving. They thought about it while awake and dreamt about it at night. Before the end of summer, prisoners were being served mush for breakfast, mush for dinner, and mush with no salt for supper. As rations decreased, many days prisoners received only a pint of boiled rice with no meat, bread, or meal to go with it. Prisoners took up professions such as bakers, bucket makers, launderer, and kettle makers to kill time as well as make money for their needs. Most raw materials were smuggled in since the Confederate guards liked receiving Yankee greenbacks. And I was just about to ask, where did they get the stuff to make all that? I guess that answered my question. Prisoners were allowed to receive boxes of food from outside after being carefully inspected, and they were allowed to send and receive mail subject to the post commander's approval. If a box arrived for a prisoner who had died, it was given to the hospital authorities for distribution. Prisoners constantly talked of escaping, and many attempts were made, such as attempts to tunnel out and run away while outside the stockade on detail. One prisoner pretended to be dead and had two friends carry him out to the dead house. After dark, he got up and ran away. Captain Wurst, suspecting the trick, had a surgeon inspect all dead bodies before releasing them for burial. That was a pretty clever of that guy. That was very clever, although I don't know I'd want to hang out in the dead house with everybody else who was dead. Living in the conditions he was, it probably wasn't much not, different. Not much different, you're right. <laughs> By the end of summer, many tunnels had been dug, and some prisoners were able to escape. 
Tunnels were found 14 feet deep and from 90 to 100 feet long. Prisoners hoping for a morsel of food would report escape plans to authorities, leading to the capture of men. Prison life took on a routine, except for tricks played on guards. When a prisoner died, fellow prisoners in his detachment tried to hide the fact he was dead as long as possible, so they could receive his ration. To hide the death from the guards, the sergeant would count many live prisoners two or three times. Also, when a prisoner died, his friend would tie one end of a strong piece of cord around the corpse and the other end around himself to prevent the body from being stolen during the night. Carrying his dead friend to the dead house enabled him to pick up a piece of wood the next day for cooking his food. On May 21, 1864, the Sumter Republican reported the Andersonville prisoners nearly escaped. The commander discovered the plans. At this time, there are 17,000 prisoners. Remember, this is a place that was built for 10,000, and 500 are being added every day. They cannot be turned loose upon the people. 3,000 to 5,000 men are needed to keep them, but there are only 500 men there. Colonel Persons is aware of the problem. West Georgia is the Egypt of the Confederacy, and the crops must not be destroyed. So there's where they got their food. By June 17th, there were 21,539 prisoners at Andersonville. By the end of June, there were 25,000 prisoners, and 7,968 men had been admitted into the hospital. So you have nearly the number of people that this prison was made for are just the ones that are in the hospital alone. Yes. And then you've got an additional 25,000 prisoners. Yes. Can you imagine how crowded that must have been. Each man had just this little bitty section of land that he could call his own to occupy. I mean, you wouldn't even be able to get up and really exercise or do anything. No. Not that any of them had the energy to do that. Many of the prisoners who arrived at Andersonville in April and May had an abundance of money. The Union armies were reclothed and paid off in spring 1864 for the spring campaigns. Many of the new recruits and re-enlisted veterans had bounty money with them when captured. Prisoners concealed money on their person in many ways. Greenbacks could be pressed inside a brass button, pressed into the sole of a shoe, or put into the bowls of large Dutch pipes with a little tobacco sprinkled. Some prisoners swallowed their rings. Gambling was rampant. Faro, dice, and $10 stakes were commonly played for. Trade was carried on with guards outside of the wall by talking through cracks and throwing articles over the fence. Captain Wurz allowed sutlers inside the prison walls to sell items to the prisoners. Prisoners with money could buy the necessities of life, such as peas, pones, wheat, flour, and salt, which were very expensive and rapidly ate up the prisoners' money. Luxury items such as tobacco, onions, eggs, soda, red pepper, gingerbread, soap, taffy, sour beer, apples, and peaches were also available to those with money. Besides money, various items like gold and silver watches and rings, pocket knives and mugs, and laurel pipe bowls carved from wood were also exchanged for food. On July 1st, 1864, an addition to the prison was completed, adding another 10 acres to the stockade, which was now 26 and a half acres. There were 26,367 prisoners in the compound. As prisoners were moved into the newly completed addition, there was a stampede and many prisoners were hurt, pressing through the 12-foot opening. The sick, falling down in the press, were trampled and killed. Strong men became wedged between the moving mass and standing timbers. A large number of strong and weak prisoners were severely injured and never recovered, and an unknown number of prisoners died. By July 21st, there were 29,200 
1,701 prisoners in the stockade and 1,735 in the hospital. On August 4th, prisoners took a petition circulated throughout the stockade requesting the speedy release of all prisoners from the horrible conditions they were living in to the proper authorities in Washington, D.C., but nothing was done. Makes you wonder if that petition ever got to Washington, D.C. It it was, um, I believe, carried by one of the prisoners, and I don't know how that was done, whether he was an escape prisoner. He was maybe one of the ones that was able to tunnel out or somehow was able to escape, but they actually took it to Washington, D.C., and it was received, but they did nothing about it. Well, now we've had a drastic number switch from the people that are in the hospital. There had been 7,000, and now we're down to 1,700, which makes you wonder, did all those other people die, or did some of them go back into the stockade when they got better? I don't imagine too many of them got better. I don't think so either. There were many church meetings among the prisoners with various clergy, two priests, and, and other Christian prisoners doing the ministering. During July, Andersonville officials became very concerned. General William T. Sherman's army was near Atlanta, and prison officials were worried that prisoners, fueled by reports from new prisoners, would start a mass uprising. You know, I kept thinking in the back of my mind, why don't these people, there's more of you than them, <laughs> yes. do something? Well, and the townspeople around them were f- afraid. Remember how I read that newspaper article about that they were afraid that these people would rise up? Yeah. Well, they could have, but they didn't have any weapons. They had no weapons whatsoever. And by this time, a lot of the the majority of these prisoners would have been too ill to do anything. That's true. However, if you are angry enough and and you can move it all and desperate enough, you could probably do some damage. Slaves from surrounding farms were brought in to fell trees and dig additional earthworks in anticipation of a cavalry attack. General Sherman did order two cavalry units to ride south and cut the Macon Railroad. He also gave General George Stoneman, who commanded one of the units, to advance on Macon itself. General Stoneman planned to free Union officers at Camp Oglethorpe and Macon, and then head south to free the 29,000 prisoners at Andersonville. He had 2,500 men and a two-gun battery. He left Atlanta on July 27th at 3 a.m. and headed south, followed by 4,000 Confederate cavalrymen. When Stoneman reached Clinton, he was attacked by the Georgia militia, and in a number of skirmishes, his cavalry was defeated. Union soldiers were either killed or taken prisoner, resulting in 500 more prisoners in Andersonville. In August, 2,933 prisoners died, 1,305 were sick in the hospital, and 5,100 were sick in the stockade. During August, the number of prisoners in the stockade was, and I can't believe this, 32,899. Prison conditions were horrendous. Prisoners were dying at a rate of 100 per day. By August 4th, there were 33,000 prisoners in the stockade, including 2,208 in the hospital. Holes were dug not only for escape attempts, but also to collect water and for warmth from the northern cold. Many holes caved in and suffocated prisoners. The water holes dried up from heat during July and August. So many prisoners died in August. Gravediggers were kept busy, and the listing of the names of the dead became a 24-hour job. They have 23,000 more people there than that was built for. Now, they've added on additions, but you can't imagine those are enough to take on this Extra amount, no. Six months after opening Andersonville, the authorities finally showed some organization by instituting the rules of Andersonville Prison. In September, the framework for four barracks, housing 270 prisoners each, was completed. 
Now, that wasn't going to do much good, was it? Four barracks, and they were only going to hold 270 people. And they and how many did you say we had there? That was almost a futile attempt. I don't know. As the men started moving into the barracks, two more barracks neared completion. During September, 2,677 prisoners died, or 23.3% of those confined in Andersonville. Between February, when the prison opened, and September 21st, 9,479 prisoners had died. Diarrhea had killed 3,530, and dysentery killed 999, for a total of 58.7% of the deaths during the first six months of Andersonville's existence. Starting in September, some of the healthier prisoners were moved in detachments from Andersonville to Camp Lawton at Millen, Georgia, and to Florence, South Carolina to help relieve the overcrowded conditions and due to the movement of General Sherman's army near Atlanta. By September 8th, 5,000 prisoners had been moved. By the end of September, the stockade that had held over 30,000 prisoners a few weeks earlier was nearly empty. Wow, they moved them fast. Yes, they did. The only prisoners remaining were those who could not walk and those who had to work on the outside of the prison to keep it operating. By October, Andersonville no longer received prisoners and only those unable to travel remained became a prison hospital housing a high proportion of sick prisoners. Besides the 8,218 prisoners there on October 1st, another 444 were added during the month. Of those 8,662 men, 3,913 received treatment in the hospital and 1,560 of those died. 28 escaped and 2,811 were transferred to other prisons. At the beginning of December, 2,000 prisoners arrived from Salisbury, North Carolina. On December 22nd, 1864... General Cooper, Inspector General of the Confederacy, wrote General John Winder that Savannah had been evacuated and suggested that prisoners from Columbia, Salisbury, and Florence be moved immediately to Andersonville because there was only one road open from Branchville to Augusta. Prisoners once again started arriving daily at Andersonville. At the beginning of January, 197 prisoners died. During January, 4,000 to 5,000 prisoners arrived daily from other prison camps. Winter 1864-1865 was the coldest winter in 25 years in southwest Georgia. One night, the temperature was 18 degrees above zero, and the wood they attempted to burn for warmth was too wet. And remember, they had no blankets. More prisoners arrived at the end of January. February was more pleasant, and the prisoners knew that if Sherman had been defeated, there would have been a larger influx of prisoners. But the only prisoners arriving were from other prisons. As the weather warmed, the prisoners started exercising and began singing patriotic songs. For the first time in 12 months, the prisoners were optimistic. Rumors were good rumors. Exchange, the end of the war, going home. In March, 180 prisoners in Andersonville Hospital died. From the guards, prisoners learned the Yankees captured Selma, Alabama and would arrive soon. The few prisoners that arrived brought good news. On March 25th, 800 prisoners left and there was talk that a train would leave every day full of prisoners. On March 28th, new prisoners brought word that General Wilson's cavalry was on the way. In April, the war ended. During the last full month of Andersonville's existence, 28 prisoners died. Most of the prisoners were sent to Vicksburg for exchange. Slowly, the prisoners left Andersonville. When Union forces arrived at Andersonville in May, about three weeks after the war ended, only a small number of prisoners remained. Before arrangements could be made to transport the sick and frail soldiers home, 
one more prisoner died. During Andersonville's 14-month existence, 12,914 prisoners died. Hundreds of the prisoners that left Andersonville perished on the way home when the Sultana, the steamboat they were on, exploded and sank near Memphis, Tennessee. Hundreds more died in northern hospitals or in hometowns from diseases they incurred while prisoners at Andersonville. The human misery reached its zenith at Andersonville and the tombstones in Andersonville National Cemetery and prisoners' written words tell a tragic story. Well, in pictures of that cemetery, there is just tombstone after tombstone after tombstone there, almost on top of each other. And that Sultana explosion, the area where that happened is apparently haunted. I've heard stories about that. Dorrance Atwater and Clara Barton worked together after the closure of the prison to locate and identify prisoners who had died at Andersonville and inform their families. For prisoners who died at Camp Sumpner, record-keeping was shabby at best. There was great concern that after the war, relatives would not be able to locate and identify the bodies of their loved ones. Into this situation stepped one prisoner, Dorrance Atwater, of the 2nd New York Calvary. Sent to Andersonville, Atwater was detailed as a clerk to the surgeon who recorded all the daily deaths. Secretly, Atwater compiled a duplicate list of names and regiments of the deceased, keying them to numbers that were inscribed on the hastily erected posts or boards that were placed over the graves. With the war over, Atwater eventually saw this list of 12,912 names published, thereby enabling proper identification of the graves. He received no reward for his efforts, but Dorrance Atwater was a true hero of the Civil War. After the war, Clara Barton, the angel of the battlefield, who was famous as a nurse during the war, started receiving letters from family members trying to locate loved ones who did not return home. In an effort to help the families, she started the painstaking research of trying to find the missing soldiers and respond to the family's inquiries. Dorrance Atwater contacted Barton in June 1865, requesting copies of her list of missing soldiers. Elated, Barton contacted Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton, requesting permission to accompany the U.S. Army's expedition to identify graves at Andersonville. While at Andersonville in July and August 1865, Atwater and Barton read the letters she had received from relatives of missing soldiers and searched through the Andersonville death register and captured hospital records looking for the missing soldiers. Laborers placed headboards over the dead soldiers' graves in the cemetery. Barton wrote dozens of letters letting family members know their loved ones had died at Andersonville. When the expedition was finished, Barton was given the honor of raising an American flag for the first time over the newly established Andersonville National Cemetery. After leaving Andersonville in 1865, Barton set up the Missing Soldiers Office in Washington, D.C. She hired numerous clerks, including Dorrance Atwater, to answer the more than 60,000 letters she received. By 1867, when the Missing Soldiers Office closed, Barton and her staff had identified more than 20,000 missing soldiers, including the prisoners who died at Andersonville Prison. Due to her fame as a nurse, Barton received the majority of the credit for the work of the Andersonville Expedition and Missing Soldiers Office. While touring the nation lecturing on the suffering of Andersonville's prisoners and displaying artifacts she had collected at the prison, Barton was hailed as heroine of Andersonville. The Andersonville Survivors Association inducted her as an honorary member, and the Andersonville Expedition to Identify Graves became known as Barton's Expedition. She only accompanied the already planned expedition and mainly wrote letters while at Andersonville, but never identified any graves, as often claimed. 
Her work in the Missing Soldiers Office in support of Dorrance Atwater are her greatest contributions to Andersonville's story. In fall 1865, Atwater was court-martialed and jailed because of a dispute over ownership of the Andersonville Death Register. <laughs> Who's going to fight over that? I don't know. <laughs> I it's, mean, the guy, he goes to all the trouble to sneak to get this kind of a register, and then they're going to court-martial him? Isn't it idiotic <laughs> what people do? I, uh, I don't know. Through Barton's efforts, he was finally released. She also supported his publication of the Death Register. Although she is often mistakenly given credit for identifying prisoners' graves at Andersonville, she deserves a great amount of credit for her efforts to account for missing soldiers at Andersonville and countless battlefields. With all of this pain and death, it is not surprising that Andersonville Prison has stories about supernatural experiences there. Many of the experiences are sensory, both audible and olfactory. One can imagine that the scent of several foul things is detected here. Well, I could imagine why. The stench comes from inside the prison. Sounds range from gunshots to loud cries, whimpers and whispers from the formerly alive prisoners. Marching has also been heard. EVPs have been collected over the years featuring these cries and distant gunshots. And the only thing I can think that there would have been gunshots from is maybe guards shooting at the prisoners. Maybe the prisoners that tried to escape or something. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously... I don't think any battles were going on right outside of the prison. So, yeah, that would be interesting to find out why there would be those gunshots. And even those raiders, they hung them. They didn't shoot them. People claim to feel the sadness and extreme fear that clings to the area, as if whomever is still here in the afterlife is continuing to feel torment and despair. Apparitions have been seen walking in the fog that sometimes coats the grounds. They appear as shadows moving in the mist that never seem to truly emerge. Many believe that the raiders who were hung here for their crimes against their fellows are angry and still walk about the camp as though they still wield some kind of power here. There's also the spirit of Father Whalen, who seems to still be here taking care of and comforting the disembodied, just as he did when they were all still alive. Many men lost their lives here during a war that split this country and left so many devastated. Emotions of all kinds were high at this time, and so it is no wonder that something seems to be carrying over to the afterlife. Are these former prisoners still at the prison? Is Andersonville prison haunted? That is for you to decide. Uh, Andersonville is definitely a place that I'd like to uh, stop by and visit. It's now a national park or national historic site. I think it's a national historic site. Yeah, I think it is. I think It's on the way to Macon, Georgia or Atlanta, Georgia, and we pass by there all the time, so... Okay, we have some reviews to share with everybody. First one up is J32376. Great podcast. I'm hooked. Five stars. I just found this podcast recently, and I'm very glad I did. Currently listening to older episodes to catch up. One thing I've noticed is that there are no locations in my hometown of Savannah, Georgia. This seems odd as Savannah is one of the most haunted cities in the country. Hopefully y'all can do a Savannah episode in the future. Once again, great job. Well, funny that you should mention that, Jay, because... <laughs> Denise and I, that probably is one of our, I would almost say it's our second favorite city to visit. We go there all the time, too. And we, at the beginning, when we were first doing the show, I kept putting on here, okay, we're going to do a show about the cemeteries in Savannah. And then I had another location. And we kept pushing them off to do these other things. And then we started getting requests from listeners and everything just kept getting pushed off. And we had made plans to go up to Savannah because Denise does a lot of her Taekwondo stuff up there. Because before she was in the ambassador to Ireland, she was the regional director. 
And so she would have to go to Georgia to conduct seminars and do testings and things. And some of that would take place in Savannah. So I had planned to join her on her last trip and we were going to feature a place in Savannah and do a show and do kind of one of our road trip type things. And then I didn't go with her. So that got kind of pushed aside. But we are planning to go to Savannah later on this year. She has a uh, conference that she's going to be hosting up there. So we will be heading up to Savannah. So I promise for sure that we will have a location for that then. And I know we're going to have a couple more coming up because for us, Savannah, New Orleans, and St. Augustine are like our trifecta that we absolutely love. So we'll get on that, Jay. An apostolic Washingtonian. Great show, five stars. Heard about this show through Bizarre States. Great blend of personality and history and hauntings. Don't worry about the negative reviews about too much chatter. Bizarre States has way more chatter than you guys put into your show. Thanks for producing a good listen. Well, thank you, Washingtonian. We appreciate that. And then we got this interesting update to a a review that we had gotten before. Some of you might recall that we had a three-star review from TAR2033 that had pointed out that perhaps we were a little xenophobic with some of our comments and maybe a little prejudiced in our thinking. And here's what has been updated. I'm updating my review as the contents of the review are no longer my beliefs. However, I'm keeping the original up so those who felt as I did see the progression in my thoughts. Since the time of my initial review, I've listened to 60 or more episodes. While I still have some issues with the cast, they are technical rather than with Denise and Diane. I can now say that what I initially felt as prejudice was just me misunderstanding the host's meaning and intent. Throughout the episodes, I've gotten to know the hosts more and more. Denise especially has a special place in my heart. I know they would never willfully seek to alienate or offend their listeners. And then this person just included their previous comment. So thank you for giving us a second chance and listening to more episodes and getting a feel for where we're coming from and changing that. Uh, we definitely appreciate that because we'd hate for us to ever sound like we're coming across as prejudiced in anything that we have to say because we usually try to lean more heavily towards supporting, I guess you could almost call it the underdogs in history, but um, okay. And we also have a review from the UK. Now, this review cracks me up because the original one from Dirty Bob Spurs is a four star. It says, this is a really enjoyable show, a good mix of history, spooky tales, and chat. I like the way they acknowledge their listeners and aren't wholly serious. Well, I've gotten to know Dirty Bob via Twitter and through our Spooktacular crew. He's actually the individual who was helping us with our correct pronunciation on different locations in the UK. And I thought, well, I would have thought that he would give us five stars. But some people, if you're not perfect, they're not going to give you those five stars. Well, lo and behold, right underneath it, there's Dirty Bob Spurs again with five stars. This was meant to be a five-star review. Damn my fingers. Still loving the show. (laughs) (laughs) I'll let people know. You can actually, you might have heard in the past that we've had people who've revised their reviews. You can do that if you go into your iTunes account and you go into your settings and then you scroll down a little ways, it'll have your reviews in there and you can go in and you can delete reviews that you don't want to have out there anymore or you can revise them and that kind of thing. So thank you, Dirty Bob, for that review or reviews, should I say. We want to thank you guys for joining us for this episode. Our next episode, we're going to be featuring The Cloisters, which was a suggestion by listener Terry Lampson. And I know nothing about this, so it should be fascinating to find out about that. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And I've been Mom. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode was brought to you by our executive producers. Welcome to new executive producer, Laurette Vinson. Thank you. 
Uh, and I just got done throwing up a haunted true crime yesterday featuring Madame LaLaurie and the LaLaurie Mansion. Oh boy, was that woman crazy and that place is crazy haunted. So that's out there for our executive producers. Thanks for your support of the show. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, One society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time.